Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 17th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. In today's text, the author of Hebrews speaks about the absolute certainty of God's word and promise, which gives us a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sam Wurgau. Pastor Wurgau serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wurgau, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Oh, thanks for having me. Talk to us about the book of Hebrews and the context that we need to know, Pastor Wurgau, to look at this section of Hebrews 6. Right, so, you know, as we're working our way through Hebrews, you definitely, uh, you know, the first, first verse of the first chapter really sets the tone for the rest of the book. Long ago and in many, uh, in many times and in many ways, God spoke uh, to our fathers by the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. It carries through this overarching theme of, of, of really um, how God worked in the Old Testament uh, and how he's working now uh, in Christ. And really, we see Christ in the Old Testament and the connection between, between the old and the new. Uh, and also, and I think this really comes into play with our text today and, and kind of what we we, we see at the end of um, uh, uh, the previous section is, is God's faithfulness, uh, how God's promise and his faithfulness to of old is continuing forward. And you really see that with this, with this text because we're going to be looking at the, uh, the, the promise that was given to Abraham and, and the certainty of that promise. But then by the end of this chapter, uh, the author really just drives it home uh, to us to say, to, to his audience to say, we we are part of this, and this is the certainty that we have, uh, and it's no different than what Abraham has, and we're heirs of that. Mm, yeah, we're going to see the author bring up Abraham as example here. He's going to quote from Genesis chapter 22. But maybe just give us a, a bit of Old Testament background there. What, what particular parts of Abraham's life do we need to keep in mind as we look at this section of Hebrews 6? Right. Well, particularly, we're going to be looking at God's promise to Abraham uh, you know, the call of Abraham that you have earlier on, then the fulfillment of that call, then when you have um, God actually granting to Abraham a son, Isaac. But then that promise that's given that we're going to look at a little bit more in detail is given really where, um, where um, with the binding of Isaac, where God actually calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham obeys the word of God. Uh, to do that, and then um, then Isaac is spared, and the ram is is uh, in the place of the uh, uh, of the um, of the son uh, that God provides the the lamb for sacrifice, uh, and and that's where you get you know that that key verse that we have here when he says, "Surely uh, I will bless you and multiply, and multiplying I will multiply you." That God gives this final kind of um, promise an oath to Abraham that this is what he's going to accomplish for him. Yeah. So, I mean, we're especially going to focus on that climactic event in the narrative about Abraham from the book of Genesis. But keeping in mind what has come before that, 
and then especially with that that moment how it's going to apply to us then as the heirs of Abraham, those who share the faith of Abraham, as Paul writes in his epistles, that's going to come into play for our text as well. So Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. That is our text for today. That is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. All right, so Pastor Wergal, the first word in verse 13, 4 when God made a promise to Abraham, for invites us to consider what's just come beforehand. So what's right. the connection between where he was and what he's saying here in this text? Right, so just to reiterate what, what we heard previously concerning this is what we have in six, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, and I'll just re- uh, read that again. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Uh, so to review the desire, uh, the author's desire is for the, the congregation or his audience to have this full assurance of hope until the end. Uh, he's preaching to them about this and this hope of their salvation, which is what we're going to get here at the, the end of the chapter as well. But before we get to that, he's going to draw our attention to actually be imitators of those who through faith uh, and patient and patience uh, inherit the promise. So this call to imitate. Then uh, now we're given who to imitate, namely Abraham. Uh, that that uh, that that is really what the Christian faith is all about. And this will come up, you know, in um, what is it, Hebrews uh, eleven and Hebrews uh, yeah. Hebrews eleven, when you have the the by faith list that goes through. But we have a we have a piece of it now here in this context. So, so if you think of the context of the, uh, of the uh, congregation that's being preached to here, um, they are uh, being called, exhorted to not be, to not be sluggish, uh, uh, but to uh, actually uh, endure uh, with this faith and this, this long suffering, which we'll get into that word a little bit more here in a bit. But in order to do that, I mean, we don't reinvent. Uh, we're not in a new situation. We're not reinventing the wheel, if you will, on this. But we we look back to those who have gone before us, uh, and so we're going to be imitating Abraham. So it's also important to note that even though Abraham is the one to to um, uh, to imitate, uh, we actually begin with what God is doing. Uh, and I think you you find that come out here in the text here, uh, where you say. Uh, for when God made a promise to Abraham, God is is the subject, right? And he's the one, the participle making the promise, and Abraham's the the uh, the the recipient of that promise, the the direct object. And so, so I think it's really important for us to see that this is the God at work here. He's the one making the promise. It starts with him. We imitate Abraham as being 
uh, uh, recipients uh, of that promise. Uh, Kleinick notes uh, this word uh, is a uh, this this word for uh, the making the promise is a key theological term for understanding God's speech in Hebrews. Uh, if one is to have hope and patience, this long suffering. Uh, then faith is directed always to the promise and to the one who gives it. And understanding promise, we also understand uh, some key points where we hear that word uh, promise used. Um, and I, I think a key one is, is is a little bit later when we have Hebrews 10.23, which says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, namely God, who promised, is faithful. So, you know, when the congregation is facing this, uh, uh, or these exhortations to not be sluggish or going through this, this long-suffering, bearing this, this patience in this life, in faith, the, the, the key thing is to look to, to, yes, be imitators of Abraham, but in so much as God gave that promise to Abraham and Abraham received it. Mm. It is really striking when you connect it to the thought of imitation that ended the previous section, and now that God, or the author is going to give us someone to imitate Abraham— especially with Genesis 22 in mind, of all the things that he could have highlighted from that text, you know, he, he could have highlighted, yeah, Abraham went when God told him. Abraham took the wood and the knife and everything. I mean, all the things that Abraham did in Genesis 22, especially verses 1 to 14, when you read through that narrative, all of those could have been things that the writer brings up. Here's what I want you to imitate— but he doesn't. <laughs> Instead, he brings right. up, this is what God said to Abraham. Like, that, mm-hmm. That's not maybe the way that we would think about it, but that really is what faith is all about, is that it, it hears a promise of God and it believes it, period. Mm-hmm. And so right. if you want to imitate those of faith, you need to keep in mind what God has spoken and said and promised above everything else. That really is the, the key. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's, I mean, otherwise faith is in itself. And that's a key thing we need to, to, to be uh, wary of, that when we're imitators of, of, of the faith of those who have gone before us, we're always directed to their faith, what the object of their faith is. And that'll come up a little bit later, too, in this, in this when we talk about uh, the hope that's set before us, right? So hope, faith isn't in itself. The hope, the point is not our hope, but that God gives us this hope. It's an objective hope that he sets before us to receive. Hmm. Now, with the word promise that you were bringing out earlier, and the way that that comes up, not only in, in the narrative of Abraham, but throughout the scriptures, how, how far back do we need to trace this promise? <laughs> right. For, certainly, is not just it doesn't begin with Abraham, though Abraham does have a, a specific call by God uh, in Genesis, uh, in several places. Uh, we have this promise given, um, he's not the first one. Uh, this promise, obviously, we would go back as far as Genesis 3.15, and uh, it's sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, you know, the first gospel. Um, I'm actually working with our, uh, what grade are they? Third and fourth graders in our, in our school. We're doing a biblical timeline with them, so we're working through all these key events, starting with creation. And, and at creation, though, we talked about creation, God creating Adam and Eve, and then we talk about the fall. And I talked to them about, you know, Genesis 3.15, where where God promises, uh, actually directed at the serpent, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and 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 he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Uh, and I said, that's the promise of the Messiah. Now that that, that promise that was given to uh, against the serpent, but which in the in the hearing of Adam and Eve is the, what they're going to take forward 
with them to their children, to their children's children. And now, as we're going through all these Old Testament events, I tell them, keep this in mind. So then just last week we had Abraham, and we talked about the call of Abraham. And I said, oh, God gave this special promise. And he said, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, through your offspring. Did we hear about an offspring earlier when we were looking at this? And, and they got it. They were like, yep, that's... that's uh, that's that one that we studied, we just did uh, earlier today, we were doing Isaac and, and looked at that same promise, reiterated again and again. So of course, it's not, doesn't begin with Abraham. Abraham's significance is that God called him and chose him uh, to have that, to be part of that specific line, that specific genealogy, which culminates then in the Messiah. Uh, so that is why Abraham is significant and why the promise and the faithfulness of Abraham to that promise is significant. But it all begins again with God's promise, not just to Abraham, not just, and for that matter too, we, we remember this isn't just for children of Abraham through blood, but those who share in that same promise, all the nations of the earth who receive that promise through faith in the offspring of Abraham, namely Christ. Yeah, this and this thought of being an heir of, of Abraham or an heir of the promise along with Abraham is going to become an important part of this section. So yep. as we think about then being an imitator of Abraham and the faith that he had, being in this promise, uh, as the author starts to talk about this promise, he says that God had made a promise, but there was nobody greater to swear by, so he swore by himself. And then he, he quotes the promise, the oath that God gives there in verse 14 of our text. Talk about the nature of the oath that the writer brings mm -hmm. up and why this is important. Right, so the oath here is, is, is distinguished from the promise. They're distinct things. Uh, and and it's, it's a sense that God gives the promise, and now he gives the oath. And when we talk about oaths or people swearing like in court, right, they're always swearing uh, by something greater than them, to be held accountable by something greater than them. And the author here is very, very clear that he says, well, there's nothing greater than God. God's giving the promise, so he's going to make this oath uh, um, uh, by himself. Uh, and, and Lenski notes on this that God could not, however, swear as men do by one who is greater, for there's no one greater than God. So the only way that God could swear to Abraham was to swear by himself. Um, and that's pretty, pretty clear in the text. But what this does, and I, I think this then carries through a little bit later in this section, is it's a reiteration of the promise and a really solemn declaration that God will be faithful to his promise. Uh, now, God knows this. We are the ones that come into doubt with this, right? That faith exists in the midst of doubt, and especially for, this, for his congregation here. Uh, the author is talking about all the long-suffering, the patience, what you're enduring in this life. Where do we have our hope? Well, there, look, God promised it, and he sealed that promise with, with this oath that we have the specific um, wording for in, in, in 14. Surely, um, uh, or what's the, I was looking at my translation. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Right, so that's the, the promise then, or the oath that God makes there in Genesis mm -hmm. 22. To the, the thought that there's no one greater that he can swear by, you know, I just imagine kids on the on the playground at school and they're they're making promises to each other. Or they're, and you think about how they there's this natural escalation. Well, I I swear by this and I'm going to outdo right. you. I swear by that. Well, the the thing that stands, the being that stands at the top of that chain is God. So if God's going to make you an oath, he's got to swear by himself. And the, mm -hmm. the key to this, uh, 
is that is the idea of certainty. That's really why this is, is such an important thing here, is because God wants Abraham, and he wants the heirs of Abraham to be absolutely certain. And so even though he really didn't need to do this, and I, th- I don't intend to get too far ahead of ourselves, but even though he didn't need to do this, he does for the sake of Abraham, for the sake of those who would hear, so that we can have this absolute certainty that nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to break this promise that God has made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The oath is added uh, for our benefit, not for God's. Uh, and, um, and Kleinick notes on this too, uh, again, hopefully we're not getting too far ahead, but since that oath is so important as the foundation for the congregation's inheritance, we go back to what this, you know, the content of this promise and this oath is all about, of having heavenly blessing from God, the teacher quotes God's oath from Genesis twenty-two seventeen. 17. Uh, now, we're going to see this come out a little bit more, how we have a human illustration of this. I mean, this is the idea of swearing or taking oaths or being true to our promises. Uh, and, and Kleinig notes, normally a person who makes a legal will uh, for his heirs can, if he wishes, revoke it and draw up another will. But since God attaches an oath to this promise and says, surely uh, with blessing I will bless you and with the multiplying I will multiply you, that's, uh, that's Kleinig's translation of this, which I think is very good. Uh, because he does that, he will not and cannot change it. Now, I know we get really weary when we say God can't do something, but because he is sworn against himself on this or sworn by himself on this, uh, he, he, that promise is certain. He does not and cannot change that oath. Uh, the oath then provides absolute certainty to his heirs about the promised inheritance. Yeah, the, the language, as you said, sometimes of saying what God can or cannot do can, can maybe sometimes run us in the wrong direction. But here, I think, it, again, it runs us in the direction of, of certainty. Mm-hmm. And so God swearing by himself is his assurance that he's not going to change, period. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, I mean, this plays into what we teach and believe about the sacraments and, and God being present for us. That, you know, what could God do? Well, I mean, God could do anything, but what has he promised to do? Those are the places where we hang our hat and where we look to certainty, because we, you know, what God could do, that's something we can't finally answer that. Mm -hmm. But when he tells us he's going to do something, then that's exactly where we need to pay attention and cling to those places, because he's, he's not going to break his promise. And that, I think, is the key to, to all of this section. Yeah, exactly. We make the distinction between God's um, hidden will to and God's revealed will, and how I mean, we, we all do this. It's a very human thing to do. Why is, why is God allowing this to happen, or what's God's will in this situation? Well, God might be moving pieces around and doing things that I have no idea about, but that's all speculation on my part. All I know is that he's doing it for the good of those uh, who have faith in him, no matter what comes their way, whatever long-suffering, patience, whatever tribulations. Um, we we don't know why God is perhaps working something in this way, but we do have a sure promise that all things do work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So it is to this promise and to this oath that Abraham sticks, to, to which he clings to these promises, and we get then especially that example of Abraham in verse 15, the one that we ought to imitate, Verse 15 says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So talk to us about what is said about Abraham obtaining, receiving, waiting patiently here in verse 15. Yeah, so so we have uh, two kind of key things 
uh, about Abraham we have. We have, first of all, we have this, uh, uh, it's translated in the ESV as uh, having patiently waited. Um, and, and, and then we, then we have the idea of obtained the promise. Uh, so two kind of things working out here. And, and again, this patiently waited draws our attention back to verse 12. In verse 12, this verb uh, directly related, related to those who were to imitate Abraham. So in one sense, the, the author here of Hebrews is, is telling the congregation, he's telling them, uh, look, you'll, you will be uh, waiting patiently in this life, uh, this long suffering. Um, and this is exactly what Abraham did too. And then you see then here the result of that is that is he obtained the promise. Um, and, and so this is really all about Abraham's reception of what God had promised uh, through his being patient. Um, and, and, and so we have this uh, patiently waiting or exercising long suffering. Uh, according to the Greek dictionary that I use, it's to remain tranquil while waiting, which I think is kind of interesting to see. And it is, it's, it, we talk about patience, right? Uh, and, and, I always, I was always told, and I was thinking about this as I was studying the text. You know, a lot of people are, say, "Don't pray for patience, right?" Because God's going to give you things that you have to be patient about. And I'm like, "Well, those are going to happen anyway." So yeah, pray for patience, right? You know, right. God's going to give you these things. They're going to be laid on your plate. So yes, pray for patience and and, and all those kind of things. Uh, and and we don't seek suffering for sure, but we we know it's coming. And, and we know that God is a God who doesn't remove suffering from us necessarily, but a God whose promises endure through the suffering, which is, again, this is whole point here with 615 as Abraham is an example of this. Um, and in verse 12, this, this verb, it was also put alongside, uh, put alongside faith, uh, again, just to reiterate, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, and again, that's the same word there, this long-suffering patience, inherit the promises. So this is put kind of side by side with faith, and this is really the life of faith. Faith exists in the midst of waiting patiently and in, in, uh, in long-suffering and, and being t- tranquil while we wait for the ultimate fulfillment of this, the obtaining of the, of the promise that in a sense we have now, and Abraham had now. He had God's word, and that's what he had to rely upon. But there is a point where Abraham then obtains this promise that is in its fullness. Um, uh, and so that's um, kind of what, what we're getting at here with this word. Uh, Lenski describes uh, this, this word for long-suffering as enduring what persons may do, which I kind of like that. It's, you know, whatever's going to come your way. Uh, and in relation to Abraham, he notes, during his life, Abraham had only the sworn promise of God. How he fared among men made no difference to him. Um, and, and that kind of comes out again a little bit later when in, uh, in Hebrews 11, uh, when you have this, again, the by faith chapter where we're, we're going back to look at these examples of faith in chapter 11, uh, in verses eight and 10, we hear it this way by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going by faith. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Uh, and, and I think if we read what's going to come a little bit later now too, and, we, and we, we understand that this example that we have of Abraham, we see that 
what he had in this life was as a sojourner, as someone who's patiently waiting for fulfillment of the promise. And whatever man does, whatever comes his way, his um, uh, faith is always directed to what God has promised in the future, not at his present circumstances that he's going through. Yeah, yeah. the The definition that you gave from the lexicon about being tranquil while waiting, I think is I think is helpful, and maybe even we could clarify it a little bit more. Being tranquil while suffering, the mm-hmm. the translation of patience as long suffering, I think, is a a helpful one, at least to have in the back of our minds, because sometimes patience is a the word patience is a little bit cleaner. Uh, yeah, nobody likes to be patient, but I mean, I can be patient. But to be long-suffering, that's really what makes patience difficult. And that's why you know, that phrase that, that you said that I know I've heard before, don't pray for patience because God will give it to you. It, like, well, why, why, do we, why do we kind of scoff at that? Because it involves suffering. And, and that's really the, the kicker when it comes to patience is that we wait, hopefully tranquilly, while we're suffering. And that's, that's the hard part. And the reason that I, I think, and I'd love to hear your comments on this, that this is often just a part of our Christian life, as the, the epistles talk about it when it comes to patience, is because we know what the promise is, and the promise is so glorious. And when I look at my life right now, I don't always see that. And so patience, long-suffering, is just built into the Christian life because of that tension in which we live. Right, exactly. Um and and I think this is actually something that's kind of built into us even, and, and even apart from the promises of God, there is this sense that we're, I'm, I'm just kind of, Augustine came to mind. I mean, you know, the only quote everybody knows of Augustine, our hearts are restless till they rest right. in you, right, from his confessions right there at the beginning. But that's part of it, right? I mean, there's this idea that we know that there's something better and we long for something better. Now, we have a clear image of that as Christians because we have this promise, but we don't have the promise uh, in, uh, we have the promise since entirely, but it's again uh, a now and a not yet thing, right? And yeah. so it's 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 not in its fullness yet as we wait. And and I often talk about this. Uh, this is one of the prayers um, uh, uh, that I pray with uh, people on hospital beds and things like that. Um, when you have either from Lamentations or, or the Psalms, also talk about this idea of of, of wait for the Lord, right? Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And, and that is precisely what faith does. It waits. It's waiting uh, for the promises to be fully revealed. It's waiting in suffering for the glory that is to come. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, when he talks about uh, it's not worth comparing, the, the, our present circumstances of suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Um, uh, and that was a probably a terrible paraphrase, but <laughs> I'm just doing it off the top of my head. But uh, but but that's the whole point of the Christian life is we have something better that's coming, but we have our crosses now that we bear, and yet in the midst of those, Christ is present with His promise, with the strengthening of our faith in that. But the Christian is not seeking to find that comfort or that glory or put an end to our long suffering in this life. It is something that we look to. Or the life to come, which gets exactly to the point where, where uh, the author talks about uh, waited patiently, obtained the promise. Yeah, you have having that's... waited patiently and then obtained the promise. So. Right. So let's pick up the thought of obtaining the promise on the other side of the break. You're listening Sounds to great. Sharper Iron on KFU. We're talking to Pastor Sam Wergal this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, October 17th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20 with Pastor Sam Wergau. He serves at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. Pastor Wergau, prior to the break, we are talking about Abraham there in verse 15, who has patiently waited, and then the author says he obtained the promise. That's where we left off. Pick back up with the thought of Abraham obtaining the promise. Yeah, actually, if you don't mind, can I go right back to patiently waiting just a little bit? Because sure. I did find something that, that's really important for us to understand about this patiently waiting that I kind of alluded to. Uh, where does this long-suffering come from? And I think that's really significant when we talk about, you know, you can tell somebody to wait, you can tell somebody to be patient, um, but the actual, the long-suffering that we have um, is actually, in Galatians 5.22, a fruit of the Spirit. And Colossians 3.12, it's something that we put on. Uh, it's something that actually is a gift that comes to us, a fruit of the Spirit, something that God works in us through his word. So the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 through 23, love, joy, peace, patience, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, and that, that these are things that, that the Spirit gives to us, that, that God works in us through faith. Um, and then also in Colossians 3.12, we talk about this as being um, putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So these are you know, Christian virtues, uh, fruits of the Spirit. But we also understand these as things, these aren't, yeah, these are things we sharpen. These are things, you know, you can work on your patience. But ultimately, these are gifts from God that he works through his word and promise to actually bestow on the Christian. So it's not like I can just have to go out there and try to be more patient just on my own in the trials that I have. But what do we do when somebody's going through suffering? What do we do when somebody is bearing crosses in this life? We, we don't tell them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. We give them the word. We give them the sacrament because that is the means by which we are strengthened in this life according to the promises of God to then obtain those promises in the end. All right, so take us then to the thought of obtaining the promises. I know the we writer got here says that Abraham did. Yeah, exactly. Obtained, yeah, past completed action in aorist in the Greek, right? And this is very interesting to ponder, especially in light of we keep we've been looking at Hebrews uh, eleven a bit here too, and there uh, the author later on will talk about all these people who by faith did this. All these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that part that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So in what way was Abraham, or did Abraham obtain what was promised? Now, Kleinig notes on this one, since Abraham was long 
he, he calls it long-heartedly patient. I like, I love that. He puts an adverb onto the patients there, an adjective onto the patients there. Long-heartedly patient. As he waited for God to act, he obtained what had been promised. And this happened, Abraham says, or Kleinig says, in two ways. The first is he in his old age received Isaac. So he did receive the promise, right? God did fulfill the promise. Uh, it wasn't like Abraham died without knowing that in, in this life that, that God gave him a son. But then after God gave him that son, he told him to go sacrifice that son. So then he says, secondly, he also received his promised son back uh, uh, from the dead with that context of that oath, right? So he didn't sacrifice. God provided a lamb uh, uh, as payment. And, and he received then that oath that was very significant. So that was in this life that, 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 God, that God, that Abraham saw and obtained that promise. However, we know that that promise extended beyond Abraham's earthly life. Uh, these were shadows of the fullness of that promise uh, of verse 14 uh, was not received fully in this life. So that in a sense, he did not obtain it fully in his long suffering in this life. He did not in his earthly life see the great nation. He didn't see the Messiah in his earthly life, right? That didn't take place. That was many years later. Lenski notes, the sworn promise to Abraham centers in Christ though. It was eternal salvation in Christ. Abraham obtained this at his death. Let no conception of earthly time disturb you, Lenski goes on. When Abraham died and entered the kingdom, he beheld the lamb slain from before the foundations of the world. He obtained the promise, just as we do when at our death we go to recline well with him at the feast in the heavenly kingdom. Uh, which did bring to mind John 8, right? Where Jesus says to the Jews, John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad, right? The idea that Abraham, after his patient long suffering, obtains by faith the promise because he dies in the faith and he goes to heaven. <laughs> Hmm. I'm glad you brought up that John 8 passage where Jesus says that Abraham did see my day and, and was glad, because in the context of... I've, I've often thought there in John 8, I suppose you could connect it to anything in the life of Abraham, but the, the thought of Abraham seeing really, I think, applies to what happens in Genesis 22, where, where the Lord sees and provides this ram, and right. to, so that... In the context of Hebrews 6 and connecting John 8 with Genesis 22, I, I really like that, because I do think that, that what happens in Genesis 22 is such a key event in the life of Abraham. It so clearly proclaims Christ ahead of time to the effect that Jesus can say what he says there in John chapter 8, and the author here can say what he says about Abraham obtaining the promise, because at that moment he saw so clearly Christ and the sacrifice that he would make that he, he died in that faith, and so he's got it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and he sees it in fullness then too. But I'm glad you made that connection between, you know, John 8 and, um, and, and, and um, the binding of Isaac and God providing the ram, because that's where everything calls, comes to a culmination, right? In God providing the substitutional atonement. And that John 8 passage actually is very, very significant because, you know, after he says that, and, that, and they said, uh, well, I should just turn to it, right? Uh, you have, you know, you're only 30 three years old and have you seen Abraham? He said before Abraham was, I am. And that's, that's right. the thing where they're picking up stones to, to throw at him, but he escapes from them. His hour doesn't come and he, and he goes his own way. But that's a turning point really, I think in John's gospel where you kind of have from that point on, that's when you start, things start getting ramped up to lead to Jesus arrest, 
betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, uh, and, and you know the atonement, and it's really significant to see that kind of in the context uh, in the uh, in the one year lectionary. That's the text for Utica Sunday, which is the Sunday before the Sunday of the Passion. So it's like mm. th- th- this takes you into Passion Tide. This is taking you right. Th- th- this this Jesus encountering with the with the Jews there is getting you kind of ready to see what he is about and what he is accomplishing. Yeah. So as we, we continue to look then at the way the writer of Hebrews brings up Genesis 22 and he starts to apply it, he uses a human example in verse 16, again, attaching to the thought of swearing and making an oath. We talked a little bit about this. How does he make specific this human example when it comes in verse 16? Yeah, so this is what Scripture does this often. Our Lord does this a lot of times, too, when he does kind of the lesser uh, understanding the greater by the lesser. Uh, that's one of my favorite phrases of Jesus is how much more, right? You see these earthly examples, how much more? So that comes up with like uh, the reading for the uh, the uh, lilies and the and the bird, birds of the heaven and the lilies, right? The Lord provides for them. How much more will he provide for you uh, in, in, you know, you who are made in Christ, God's image, you who are redeemed by Christ, the crucified, how much more will he provide for you? So this is the kind of lesser to the greater that we have here. So, so yeah, let's look at just how humans function, right? Let's, you know, um, uh, people swear by something greater than themselves. And in their dispute, in all their disputes, an oath is a final is final for confirmation. He's going to come up here a little bit too with 18, the two unchangeable things, kind of the witnesses to this. But the author gives us human equivalent of what God is doing, looking at the lesser to demonstrate the greater or the greatest, really. Uh, he turns to the function of human oaths in the settlement of legal disputes. This is uh, in comparison to what he will lay out in the last few verses. Now, Lenski writes about this, men swear by the greater, namely by God. As in verse 13, the result is that such an oath settles any matter to which such an oath is made. They will no longer listen to any statement that contradicts the one that is sealed by such an oath. This is true when men take an oath, how much more than when God himself makes a sworn statement, in the in this case, uh, a promise that he's giving. Hmm. So then as as the writer continues in verse 17, he says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Help us into this, these verses. Yeah, there's all sorts of great things here. Uh, so the author is moving to what God has done, right, from this human example. So it's kind of neat to see, you know, so we go to the example of Abraham. We go to a human example, and now we move into what God has actually done. God, unlike people, has no need to confirm these promises. We talked about that with an oath because he's utterly reliable. His word is always true, but he does this for our sakes. His addition of an oath is even stronger, a stronger attestation than a human oath. It delivers certainty to those who are his heirs. It puts the terms of their inheritance beyond dispute. Again, so this is for our edification. And verse 18 gets more into this purpose. And you have these two things that are talked about, two unchangeable things. So you actually have three things, right? So you have that are unchangeable. You have the unchangeable character of his purpose. Then you have two unchangeable things. And these unchangeable things um, uh, uh, are God's, um, are really what God is accomplishing. The the test, uh, sorry, I lost my spot here. The two unchangeable things are really his promise and his oath, right? 
Uh, God gives these things. God cannot change. God cannot lie. And yet he is giving these two things, his promise and his oath. Um, uh, and so this kind of all ties together to assure the heirs that God who does not change has this uh, purpose and has this uh, promise and oath that he's given. So this uh, counsel of God embraces the entire kind of gospel plan regarding our salvation in Christ. Uh, uh, it's the counsel and the promise and the oath that all go, go together uh, for our edification. Mm. Yeah, this, this thought that there's the two unchangeable things, when God really only needed to give one, you know, <laughs> when God speaks, that's that. I mean, you think about, oh, I, my mind goes maybe to, to Zechariah listening to the angel Gabriel and Zachariah is kind of like, I don't know about this. How can I know it's going to happen? And the angel says, look, I came from God's presence. I've got his word. Who are you to tell me it's, it's wrong? You know, God, right. God does not need to repeat himself. He doesn't need to give you anything more. But he does for the sake of, of you who would believe, which I, I think is, if, just to speak about it a little more generally, is something for us to keep in mind when we think about what God's glory is. You know, God, God's glory is is for the sake of, of saving us and for the sake of, of giving us certainty. He doesn't just speak his word once and say, look at me and how glorious I am. Although he certainly could, and we, we should give glory to God anytime we hear his word. But rather, he speaks his word for the sake of us who hear it. And, and he knows that you know, maybe, maybe they're not going to believe it when I just say it once. And, and yeah, they should, but I'm going to speak it a second time. I'm going to give it as an oath so they'll know for certain. I think you I mean, you just see the gracious nature of God in all of this and how that is his glory, is to be gracious. Yeah, exactly. Uh, his graciousness and even his patience long, long-suffering, right, yeah. with us, and that he continues to have mercy upon us. Correct, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and then, again, now to, to tie this maybe back into the, the text and to the scriptures, too, the thought that he gives two things, again, he doesn't have to, but he's, he's making use of words that he's spoken in the Old Testament about having two witnesses. Right, exactly. In particular, and this is great when we come into this idea of uh, uh, these two witnesses that are given, um, so you have, um, well, he talks about this later, the author talks about this later in Hebrews 10.28, um, that anyone who has set aside the law of Moses would die without mercy on the basis of evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus talks about this in John 8 again, the idea that uh, the testimony of two people are true and that the one who bears witness about himself, or that he bears witness about himself and the Father who sent him also bears witness about him. So, you know, the two witnesses legally necessary to establish a matter. And and we do have these, these in a sense, witnesses that take place here. And, and the fact that and both of these are kind of coming from God so it's really important to kind of see that um, that these things are unchangeable. Where man can lie, even in taking an oath, right? Uh, even in giving a promise, the nature of God Himself is that He cannot lie, and that He is unchangeable in His promises. Which then ties us to Psalm one ten, verse four, um, where we talk about uh, God cannot lie. Where there, there in Psalm one ten four, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So now we have Melchizedek kind of come into play here, which will, in the Psalm, and he's going to come into play here as we get into uh, 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 verse twenty. So, 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, Melchizedek has been in the in the background all the way since back in chapter five, where the writer started to talk about how Jesus is going to be the great high priest, the one who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, the one that we can approach with confidence. Really, that takes us even back into the end of chapter four. And so he's brought up this verse with Melchizedek in passing back in chapter five. We've had a bit of an interlude here where he's warned them against apostasy, encouraged them to, to keep on hearing, not in a dull way, but in an active way. And so he's, he's working his way back to this, this point that he brought up earlier about Melchizedek. And, and whether to your disappointment or to your joy, you don't get to tell us too much about Melchizedek today, <laughs> uh, Pastor Wergau. The, the next couple of guests will get to dig a little bit more deeply into who Melchizedek is and, and why he comes up sure. here. Uh, but he does get mentioned here, and the matter of an oath, as you mentioned in Psalm 110, becomes very important when it comes to, to Melchizedek and, and the connection to our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. As, the, as the writer continues in our section, though, we have a, a wonderful promise in verse 19 and a fantastic image. He, he says to the congregation, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And then he calls that a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Let's take those one at a time. Talk to us about the the image of an anchor and how that applies. Yeah, so so well, it's really neat to see that kind of in the progression of, of, of what, how he's speaking here, he's now drawing it to his readers again, or his listeners again, to the congregation again, when he, when he puts it in this third or uh, first person plural with the we's, right? And he talks about these we's uh, as being, or he talks about us as having these things. Uh, we have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So, so first of all, we have uh, this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, uh, and this idea of, of of the anchor that holds fast a ship that's being tossed in the sea, right? That's what really the imagery here. This isn't an anchor that's sitting in the ship. This is an anchor that is holding fast in the midst of the sea, uh, and it's holding a boat, which I think is significant when we talk about the imagery that we have throughout Scripture of Christ. Uh, uh, the church is the boat, right? And Christ is present with us. And Christ is the anchor uh, that that, that kind of holds us in the rocky seas that we have. So we have this anchor of our soul and a hope that, uh, again, you talked about the hope being set before us, this sure and steadfast anchor, this hope that's set before us, and a refuge um, that we might have. I kind of went back up a little bit in 18, that refuge that we might have and uh, to hold fast in this. And all of these things then are found their place. The anchor, the refuge, um, are, are ways of holding the, 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 the Christian during his long suffering on something more steadfast than his current circumstances or situation uh, in, in the midst of his long suffering. Mm, yeah, the, the hymn my hope is built on nothing less makes use of this imagery of the the anchor in stanza two of lutheran service book 575 in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil and then the the refrain of that hymn on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand but even then into the next stanza i think really is is keeping in line with what is spoken here in hebrews 6 his oath, his covenant, and blood support me in the raging flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. More of that Hebrews imagery, even in that third stanza 
drawn not only from from chapter six with the thought of anchor, but also the oath and then the covenant and blood. That's going to become important later in the in the letter. So that's a just one hymn that uses this imagery from Hebrews six for the sake of our comfort. Yeah, exactly. And notice that this is set into the context too, though, that we have here. We talk about the covenant and the blood that we have this idea of the curtain, right? Entering the inner place yeah. behind the curtain. And of course, that's temple language. That's uh, uh, temple language, which is really the temple as a as an image of, of the presence of God, heavenly presence of God here on earth. So I think that's really significant that we we kind of, he moves us to this worship language um, and, and, and this language that's then centered upon Christ as the mediator, Christ as the forerunner, but the one who uh, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, Christ who, who, who gives us access to the very presence of God, to the Holy of Holies. Uh, he, uh, you know, by the all-atoning blood of Christ, just as the priests in the Old Testament foreshadowed, now in its fullness gives us access to God. Um, the, the inner part behind the veil is not just some figure language, Lenski puts, but is taken from the earthly type in order to designate the reality of this heavenly anti-type, which would at once be understood by the readers. Again, this is Hebrews. This is the context that we're looking at. Those, they knew about this. They understood this um, as former Jews, that this was um, about Christ giving access to, to God, giving us access to God uh, by his blood. So talk more about the liturgical aspect of this. You know, we think about, we just read the book of Leviticus prior to the book of Hebrews here on Sharper Iron and and saw that tabernacle, temple imagery. For us as Christians, the thought of entering into the inner place and what happens in the divine service, Mm -hmm. how does that enhance our understanding and, and hopefully make us appreciate all the more what happens when we go to the divine service? Right, it's precisely because that, that, that that's what receiving the the forgiveness of sins through the word through the sacrament is is how we 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 come before God in worship and as He serves us uh, in uh, the work that God accomplishes for us in His congregation now and it's all based upon those same promises that God gives now the gift of uh, forgiveness of sins life and salvation is being delivered to God's people through the preaching of his word, uh, through the receiving of uh, his body and blood, through the word of absolution. Uh, And that's precisely where faith clings to those words and promises of God that, you know, he doesn't change. This is what he's promised. This is what we have, and this is what we rely upon uh, in the midst of our patient long-suffering in this life. And so again, this goes back to, I keep going, maybe because I have a lot of uh, hospital visits lately, but I keep going back to uh, these promises being what we bring to the people when they can't come to church because they're in the hospital, they're homebound. We're still bringing those same gifts of God, that same promise, because that's, again, the fruit, uh, the, how faith is given and how faith is strengthened and how one bears uh, impatient, long-suffering uh, in this life on the promise of God until they are received in full uh, uh, when they're graciously taken from this veil of tears to to Christ in heaven. Talk about what he says there in verse 20, that Jesus has gone to this inner place behind the curtain. He's gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. Talk about what that, especially that thought of Jesus as a forerunner on our behalf. What does that mean? Right. Wherever Christ goes, we follow, right? (laughs) And I mean, I think that's significant for us to see that um, as Christ has 
gained access to the Father, gone before us through suffering into death. The Christian goes through suffering into death. But as we follow forward, as he's the forerunner, he's also called the first fruits, right, of those who believe as the resurrected Christ. So um, we, we, we move forward and, and, uh, and Christ goes before us in this way, gaining us access to the, to, to the presence of God, access to the Father, uh, the one who goes before us so that we can ultimately be with him. Hmm. We have about two minutes here on the morning, Pastor Wargal. Again, Melchizedek is mentioned here at the end, and that's going to be where the writer of Hebrews will really take us into chapter 7. So stay tuned for the episodes coming up on chapter 7, and we'll talk more about Melchizedek and how that relates to Christ being a high priest. Uh, for our purposes today, help us to, to wrap things up on this section of Hebrews chapter 6. Right, so I think it really does come down to, um, as as we kind of see this progression of, of thought, uh, this this preaching of the word that the author is doing to his congregation, um, he, he's drawing their attention both to their present practical circumstances that, that they are in this life and they have to bear uh, patient long-suffering through this life, but they don't do it on their own terms. They don't do it by their own strength, but they're always drawn to the promises of God and the certainty of God. Uh, the fact that these promises and this oath are so certain that God gives them for our certainty uh, uh, and that these are the unchangeable things, as he emphasizes, in the midst of all the change, uh, changes and chances of life, and how they are centered not only upon Christ, which they are, but as Christ as the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Christ as our intercessor, Christ as our uh, uh, priest who has laid down his life to win for us the forgiveness of sins, access to the Father, and who now continues to serve as our great high priest, interceding for us, and as our priest who gives to us those gifts of God in his word of forgiveness, in his word of absolution, in his holy baptism, and in his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Pastor Sam Wergau is pastor at Bethlehem Lutheran Church in Ossian, Indiana. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. Pastor Wergau, thanks for being our guest today. Always enjoy it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this section of Hebrews 6, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Thank you.